Hello and welcome to the Motown Philly Podcast. I am Tim Golden and I'm here with my co-host, Jason Hall. And we are the Motown Philly Podcast. Jason is from the D, as in Detroit, Michigan. And I am from the P, as in Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. And together we are Motown Philly. Here at the Motown Philly Podcast, we are all about our mission, which is communication, connection, and community. Yes. We are at episode 12, and we want to welcome you to episode 12. And wow. Jason, can you believe it's 12? We are 12 episodes in to this wonderful space of podcasting with the awesome super duper awesome listeners that we have i'm so grateful how about you jason very grateful there's a smile on my face uh as we go deeper and deeper uh, through this journey of podcasting and i'm just excited for uh, our listeners and what we're sharing and it's a beautiful experience and knowing that we are we're making headwaves out there in this podcasting universe and and here's a here's the best thing about it loving loving every minute of it absolutely loving every minute every second every millisecond and i'm just so over overwhelmed with joy at the fact that those of you who are listening right now are making us part of your lives and that you take the time to listen and to share. And if you can get into a place where you can write a review, by all means, do that. You can find us on Spotify and on Apple podcasts. And we are just we are just beyond thrilled mm -hmm. and beyond blessed to have such a wonderful listening audience as all of you. So thank you from Motown Philly to you. We just say thank you, thank you, and thanks again. Well, Jason, today we have a new topic on episode 12 of the Motown Philly podcast, and that topic is ethics and communication, or we might call it the ethics of communication yeah we we take so much for granted jason when it comes to communication mm -hmm. and one of the things we take for granted is that communication is connected to responsibility yeah that as speakers and as communicators we are responsible for what we say and we are responsible to those who hear us. We have mm -hmm. a responsibility to deliver messages and information that is accurate, that is sensitive mm -hmm. to those who are listening, that is, how can I put it, that is true but not insensitive mm -hmm. that's accurate mm -hmm. while being empathetic and compassionate and, and compassionate. And that's a lot to think about. That's a lot to consider. Mm -hmm. So 
You know, it's funny. I, I let me just put it. I sure. saw as you're describing what you're what we're going to talk about today. Like you did that with a level of intention and care, like care, so that That's you right. can so that you can portray the words to our audience that as to why this topic is so important. Very good. I'm sorry. Go ahead. That's right. So so if you if you take the time to think about all of the moral implications of communication, mm -hmm. you can begin to see how easy it is to transgress those obligations when you don't take them seriously. Mm -hmm. How easy it is to communicate honestly, but unempathetically. How easy right. it is to communicate carelessly mm. and how easy it is to completely overlook the listener in favor of something that you just want to get off your chest right? because you feel a certain way, angry mm. or whatever the case or sad or whatever the case may be. And so let's talk about ethics, Jason. Let's talk about this notion of being responsible. Let's talk about being mm -hmm. responsible for and being responsible to. I think that's a distinction that we need to pay attention to. Yeah, let's let's talk about that. Let's unpack that. Yeah. So we are responsible for what we say, which means that we have to hold ourselves accountable mm -hmm. for the things that we say. And we are also responsible to other people because what we say has an effect on right. the listeners. Right. We're responsible as communicators in this podcast to enter into this space with a sense of care for listeners, with a sense of, uh, of attention to mm -hmm. the fact that everyone is not in the same place. And here's something that we've talked about before. It's difficult to express that kind of care for others if we are not paying attention to ourselves. Right. A thousand. And I'd like you to unpack that a little bit, Jason. What is what role does self-awareness play in the responsibility and ethics of communication. So as a communication skills coach, I often teach to my students and clients first, as we walk through the journey of learning how to be better speakers and better communicators, I start one of my first sessions is a starting point of knowing thyself. Uh, I believe wholeheartedly it's hard to make a consistent, conservative, powerful, impactful, expressive charge forward. That's how I'm going to how I'm going to couch that. That comes from a being, a human being that that has no sense of centeredness, has no no concrete anchored sense of self. Knowing thyself helps you often understand what you will not say 
or what you will not do versus what you will do or will say because you're anchored. Like, this is me. This is where I am. And this is who I am. And I know my limitations. I shouldn't call Maybe I shouldn't call it limitations or my boundaries that I've set for myself that are healthy. And because I know me and understand my, my place in this space that I'm seated in, metaphorically speaking, I know where to go and, and whom my audience is, right? And what to say to them. And when you have a, and you have a stronger sense of self, there's a level of peace as you communicate outwardly. There's a, there's a level of, of, of assured confidence. It's almost like knowing that I'm standing on a solid foundation, you know, like the house that was built on shaky sand is the one that will crumble at, at, at ends at, at the end of time or during some type of storm or, but when you're centered, and your foundation is strong as to who you are, whose you are, and what your purpose is, bro, your ability to say what you need to say with a sense of awareness and careful consideration, using empathy, using compassion, it helps you to be an architect, a better architect, a better steward of your words, because you do have a stronger sense of self, and you also because and because of that, you also have a stronger sense of the individuals in whom you're speaking with. I like what you said, Jason, because when you have a strong sense of self, it becomes easier to stay in your lane. One of the one of the one of the core principles behind being responsible for what you say is very simple. Mm -hmm. If you don't know about it, don't talk about it. <laughs> sure. If you are not competent to render an opinion about something, if you do not understand the nuance and the historical underpinnings of the social context or political context of what you're saying, you probably shouldn't be talking about it, especially in a day and age where most people have the attention span of an agitated gnat and are uninterested in nuance and texture and levels that are necessary in order to understand certain messages. Enter our good friend, Kyrie Irving. Bam, 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 bam. Kyrie Irving, NBA superstar for the Brooklyn Nets, recently has used social media, Twitter, on two different occasions, on one occasion, maybe about three weeks ago or so, he retweeted some conspiracy theories from Alex Jones. 
Alex Jones is that famous non-mainstream media character who, for those of you who are listening and may not know who he is, his podcast, InfoWars, has taken on fame in recent years because of his open denial of the Sandy Hook tragedy in 2012 where there was a gunman who opened up fire on a classroom full of first graders in Sandy Hook, Connecticut, and they were killed. And Alex Jones spent a number of years, close to a decade, talking about how it was a false flag operation and the parents were actors. And he basically said a lot of hateful, mean-spirited things that were, frankly, just irresponsible. Mm-hmm. And the principle, if you don't know about it, don't talk about it, applies here because there comes a point where when you reach the, the status of Alex Jones, you become a pariah such that anybody who embraces you is going to likewise be seen as a pariah. And I think we have a responsibility to ourselves and to the world, to the communicative world, to those who hear us, to not indulge things that come from people who have, des- who have, who have, what's the word I'm looking for? Who have distinguished themselves mm-hmm. as disruptive communicative forces in the society. So when Kyrie Irving retweets something, anything from Alex Jones, people are not going to say, oh, well, he didn't tweet anything about the Sandy Hook tragedy. He was tweeting about something else. People just don't really want to hear from Alex Jones. And most people don't. And so when we're responsible for when we're responsible for what we say to say that is to say that we have to get to a place where we say to ourselves, if I don't know about it, I'm not going to talk about it. I'm not going I'm not just going to retweet something I heard somebody else say because it sounds good to me. Mm-hmm. And he did that recently with uh, a retweet of a movie that was designated by many people to be anti-Semitic. Now, I haven't seen the movie. It may be the case that the movie is not anti-Semitic. I don't know. But we, we have to be responsible enough to understand that everybody is not going to pick up on the nuance. And everybody is not going to give in to our desire to have them listen to what we have to say just because of our celebrity status. And so that's a real problem. If you don't know about it, don't talk about it. If you're not a scholar in religion and prepared to back up what you say in a certain context, don't talk about it. Don't Mm -hmm. talk about how the Jews are not really Jewish people. 
and certainly don't talk about it on social media, which is the last place in the world where you're going to find any sort of nuance at all. Those kinds of conversations should be reserved for the most academic of environments where people can be prepared to engage you and respond carefully, not where we're going to get a bunch of knee jerk reactions and where the conversation is going to deteriorate into memes and gifs and all sorts of giggles and emojis. That's just downright silly. And, and I think Kyrie Irving has got to do a little better than that. I, I think the, you're right. Uh, I think the magnitude of, of, of what Kyrie has done is also, uh, what's the word? It has a level, it has a level of, gra- of gravity based on his so his his major following his celebrity like he it's almost as if here's the thing a a lot and this i I think listen when we're talking about speakers and communicators when you become a celebrity you don't have to necessarily be some grandiose like speaker or politician Actually, politicians, a lot of times they get ignored because there's a what they say can often be surmised as rhetoric, you know, as chatter to to the day to the day and times. But if you're a celebrity, uh, a lot of what you say holds maybe a lot more weight than that of a politician, because you're not often you're not often talking about some you typically talk about what you're what you're an expert at, like, uh, I don't know, let's say Kim talk, Kim, Kim Kardashian, I like Kim, like everyone, Kim Kardashian, she talks about fashion and makeup. And that's kind of her lane is when they get noticed, when, when celebrities get noticed, when they start talking about something, like you said, that they really don't have an expertise at. And it's not like they can't talk about it. I don't think that's what you're trying to say, Tim, like, because you don't know about it, you should hush your mouth. It's because you have such a platform, because you have such a following, because you are not talking about your expertise, basketball, uh, makeup, fashion, and because you have now garnered such a you know, such a wider audience. And now you are now (laughs) you so choose to be, and I don't, I don't even want to say you're in your feelings. Like you're not in your place of genius. And I'm not saying it's it's not a shut up and dribble type thing. It's like, if you want to venture off and start talking about cultural, societal, religious, socio-political type type things where people study, where people have shows and debates and arguments and there's true strong tension and resistance. And like, if you want to approach that arena, you need to be able to speak 
and even defend yourself about what you have to say about those things. Like Kyrie tweeted out a, a, a documentary that had a bunch of anti-Semitic um, tropes, sayings, uh, ideology from a dude that society for the majority of speaking from is 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 very polarizing and doesn't i don't think his his view and his ideology is 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 not a generalized um thought process or school of thought and Kyrie might found one or two things that resonated with him and he so decides to to tweet out something that largely, largely offends an entire group of people. That's irresponsible. Like <laughs> so so here's so here's the thing, Jason. There are times when our responsibility to or that, I'm sorry, there are times when our responsibility for what we say demands silence i.e. Kyrie Irving. But then there are times when our responsibility for what we say demands speech. Yes. There are times when we must say something as well as there being times when we must refrain from saying anything. So I'm reminded here of the book of Job. Mm -hmm. And this is a master class in communication in the book of Job. Because okay. when Job's friends come to see him, the Bible says that they see him from a distance and they are basically shocked. They're flabbergasted. They can't believe that their friend is in such a wretched condition. And so what do they do? When they see him, they go up to him, and the scripture says that they sit down with him on the ground for seven days and seven nights, and nobody says any, anything. <laughs> in that moment, his friends understood that they had a responsibility not to speak. They had a responsibility to refrain from speaking. Why? Mm -hmm. Because it is, it is impossible to talk about something that you don't understand. If I had to give a lecture, tomorrow in an organic chemistry class, it would be a disaster unless I kept my mouth shut. <laughs> because if I opened my mouth and began trying to talk about organic chemistry, I would make a fool of myself because I'm attempting to speak about something I don't understand. And lo and behold, the tragedy of the book of Job is that his friends 
couldn't keep their mouth shut long enough to show compassion to their friend because eventually they open their mouths and start talking and they sound like me giving an organic chemistry lecture. They're making fools out of themselves. Right. Oh, well, Job, your kids must have done something to deserve all of this. Because who being without who who being without sin has has ever suffered? Right? Who who has ever never mind that the central figure of the Judeo-Christian tradition, Jesus Christ, is one who suffered without ever sinning. That's the, that's the real irony. Sure, the point sure. is, the point is that Job's friends opened their mouths and began talking about something that they did not know anything about. And what did we say at the beginning, Jason? If you don't know about it, don't talk about it. Tell me this, though, Tim, how explain a little bit more or how can we bring or let the audience understand the ethical portion of it? Like is ethics when we t start talking ethics, is it true to say ethics truly, truly centers in relationship? truly centers in the communication of that centers around relationship like what makes job's friends wrong or right in regards to ethical speech or non-verbal speech and so i think what makes them in this case i think what makes them wrong is that they go from one state of affairs in which they have complete regard for Job and his suffering, and they keep their mouths closed to another state of affairs where their rational desire to explain what is happening to him supplants their concern for him in relationship as a friend, and they just begin talking in an attempt to make themselves feel better. I call this endeavor rational labor. It is a labor done in the service of your own reason to make sense of a situation to and for yourself without regard for the compassion needed to make the other person uh, to make the uh, to help assuage the other person's pain or the other person's suffering. There's another example, mm -hmm. and this is also a biblical example. And by the way, you might be listening to this and you may reject the Bible completely. That's fine because even if you do, if you look at these examples as stories that illustrate the principles we're talking about then whether you believe they're true or false, you can take something from them. Mm -hmm. So there's another story, Jason, and this is in the New Testament. It's in the Gospels, and it's in the Gospel according to John chapter 9 and the first three verses where the Scripture says that Jesus and his disciples see a man who had been born blind since birth, and the first question the disciples ask when they see him is, who did sin, this man or his parents? 
Mm-hmm. Now, just to set this up a little bit, it's important to consider that in the first century, if you had a physical disability, it was assumed that you had some sort of moral failing that mm-hmm. caused that physical disability. So in his case, because he was blind, somebody in his genealogy must have done something wrong to make him blind. Right. In fact, uh, the disciples said, was it him or his parents that he was born blind? I want to just let everybody think for a second of how reason can make us stupid. How in the world could he have done something to be born blind? He would have had to exist before he was born in order to do that. Right? Our desire for explanation, our, our impulse toward rational labor is so strong that we are willing to talk about things without knowing anything about them. The disciples, the disciples knew nothing of this man. Mm -hmm. Right. And we have so many people in our society and our culture that just like the disciples are willing to do and say whatever they can do or say to offer their theory and their explanation about why things are the way they are without having any knowledge whatsoever about what they are saying. And in the meanwhile, what you end up doing to this man who was born blind is you turn him, you dehumanize him so much to the point where he becomes little more than the walking billboard for the latest theory about why he was born blind. And that is tragic. So we, I'm sorry. So I was just going to say we have a responsibility for what we say, and we have that responsibility because we are responsible to others. I think, I think, uh, first of all, totally, I totally see that. I see that working and playing itself out in, in day to day life. But what my thought process, as you were saying, what you said was centered around something that might seem a little bit more selfish as you think about as you think about the disciples who asked who did sin he or his parents if you think about job and his friends who sat with job for several days and then broke the silence of why this happened. If you think about Kyrie and what he has did, it seems like there is seemingly a, some type of offloading or, or of, of some type of offloading that says I'm because I need to feel for lack of a better word, better about my where i am and to give some type of rational thought that puts me in alignment with this makes me feel better by understanding or flipping or or making the rational thought this is why this is why that happened or this is why this is happening it seems like it 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 centers more so around a selfish idea of that's what's going on in this particular person's space, but I'm going to start putting words out 
that makes a clear distinction between what's happening to them and what I and or what I'm not doing or didn't do that makes me in some light a type of uh, I don't know I feel better about myself I um maybe in a higher light maybe it's unconscious but it's just like how can I rationalize your situation that makes me feel better I think that's what I'm trying to say and I think that comes from a selfish a can come from a very selfish place and if you speak from that place you rarely find compassion you rarely find empathy as you're saying things to create a dynamic that i care about you and i care about the dialogue the communication that you and i have let me walk forward in this discussion in a careful way to consider not just me but to consider you as i'm speaking as i'm speaking these things not to only find some type of rational ideology and understanding that helps me feel better but helps how can we both how can if just sitting there is your act of community and communication cuz you're even if you're speechless there you're still communicating by nonverbal presence right but to to the, having the urge and feeling the need to say something and you haven't gotten to a space that let me be careful about what i say and considerate about what i say empathetic and compassionate if you're not there you probably should not be speaking i think so i think that's right i use the phrase rational labor you oh, yeah. used rationalizing. We do that because we turn ourselves into an end rather than a means to an end. In other words, instead of tarrying with the other person's suffering mm -hmm. long enough mm -hmm. to acknowledge that it just might be outside the scope of my comprehension in order to make ourselves feel better. As you say, we have to figure out a way to explain it so that we can exempt ourselves from that calamity. Mm. The first question we ask when we hear somebody dies, right? Somebody died of cancer. Mm -hmm. First, one of the first questions a lot of people ask is, oh, well, what kind of cancer was it? Oh, it was lung cancer. He smoked for years. And mm -hmm. inside you're thinking, wow, mm -hmm. not me, you mm -hmm. know, and we give the obligatory, oh, I'm sorry to hear about your loss. But inside what we're thinking is we're glad there is some rational explanation mm -hmm. to it. One of the worst things we like to hear is when someone dies as an act of random violence or something that was totally beyond our control. Why? Because we are in that moment reminded of our own mortality mm. and the, the real contingency of our own existence. Mm -hmm. And we're reminded of just how much our own lives hang in the balance. And we don't like feeling insecure. We like to feel the floor beneath our feet. 
-hmm. We like to make sure we have a strong foundation of reason and Mm -hmm. we'll do anything we can to get to that strong foundation, even if it means sacrificing the other person's sense of self and feeling and emotions in the process. Yeah. And, Yeah. and, And that's a very dangerous place to be when we consider communications, because again, this, this idea of tarrying with another person, there's a philosopher named George Yancey who writes about this concept of tarrying. Mm -hmm. And he talks about how in race relations, sometimes whites don't want to tarry with the suffering of black people, but they want to immediately begin to make abstractions and rationalizations and nobody wants to actually pay attention. You know, when George Floyd died, believe it or not, there were people who were trying to make sense of his, of his killing, right? There were people who were trying to make sense of it because why? Because a lot of folks, many of them white wanted to make themselves less culpable. Mm hmm for him. That's why everybody is so quick to say, oh, well, all police aren't so bad. And and, you know, it isn't, you know, this is why all lives matter. Right. And we we say these types of things because we want to make ourselves feel less responsible, because, of course, if there is no systemic racism, then I don't benefit from it. Right. And if I don't benefit from it, then I'm I'm not really culpable. And so in one sense, we are accountable or we are responsible for what we say. But in another sense, because we are thoroughly allergic to that sense of accountability, we try to avoid it at all costs, even when it means trampling on the feelings and the sensibilities of our fellow human beings. Yeah. Uh, when you mentioned tarrying with someone, uh, I love that, like that, that word or that phraseology of, and I, I see empathy when I hear that word. I see, I see sitting with coming alongside, if you will, as opposed to being in opposition and, and you being across from me. I now sit with you. I tarry with you to find uh, feeling or to assimilate feeling in some type of way to, to see your vantage point, because now we're looking in the same direction. Uh, and we don't often see that when, when things happen across from us and we try to rationalize uh, what happened, like you, you mentioned in George Floyd and, you know, to, to talk about irresponsible speech along with Kyrie, Kanye West was also put into um, the, the limelight of, you know, our country's dialogue when it came to race and whether it was George Floyd or um, him also saying anti-Semitic things. And, you know, Kanye said something about that said something that's very untrue and hurtful. He, you know, he he's, I mean, Kanye has a platform because he's a celebrity. So whatever platform he's on, people are going to listen to it. 
And when you say something irresponsible, like George Floyd didn't die because of because of uh, the knee that was on his neck for o- almost 10 minutes, it was because he had fentanyl. And like that is not just disrespectful or irresponsible is negligent and and you can't like you you why are you f- trying like why are you why would you say that it's it's factually untrue what are you doing why are what are you doing to say that like why do you feel like you need to why why do people not just Kanye like Kanye didn't make that up that comes like that comes from an idea of how do I rationalize this person's incident. Oh, you, you're dying from cancer because a certain type of lung cancer. Oh, because you smoke. Like, I'm just going to like summarize your life because you did that. This is why, this is why this happened. And that's why I'm different from you because I make better decisions. Like, that's right. That might not be a conscious thought, but that's a subconscious attitude. Oh, George Floyd didn't die because he was resistant or because he had a knee on his neck is because he was a bad dude. He was, you know, he was out there with counterfeit money. He had drugs in his system. Like, that's what I'm going to, that's the conversation I'm going to tell to my people, to myself, to help me feel better. That didn't happen like that. Jason, I I couldn't agree with you more. When I think of tarrying, I think of Job's three friends and how they started Mm -hmm. with him. They began doing the right thing. They tarried with him. Mm-hmm. They didn't theorize. They didn't say this happened to you because this. And I got to say this to make myself feel better. I'm going to go out on a limb and say the reason why Job's three friends couldn't keep their mouth, couldn't keep their mouth shut was because the reality that hit them of the contingency of their own existence was so overwhelming that they began speaking and rationalizing in an attempt to make themselves feel better. Exactly what you said. And they had to find a way to differentiate themselves from Job. They had Mm -hmm. to find a way to put themselves in a safe space Mm -hmm. in a way that Job was not the same way that the disciples had to do that with the man born blind, Mm -hmm. because in the end, they wanted to walk away from their encounters with Job and the man born blind saying, well, that's not going to happen to me Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because I didn't sin. My parents didn't sin and I wasn't born blind. So now I can walk around and feel better about myself. Mm-hmm. Now we're coming to the core of it, right, Jason? <laughs> right. Now we're getting to the ethics of communication, which is an ethics that says me and myself, I am not an end. The goal mm-hmm. is not to make myself feel better, that if I'm going to communicate and connect and have community, I have to do that in a way that is completely selfless Mm -hmm, or mm -hmm. at least selfless enough to make space for you before I make space for myself. Mm -hmm. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. I I think about what we kind of discussed today in our group session before we hopped on. There is a level of self-soothing in our rationalization because when we look at traumatic things, we want to distance ourselves from them and rationalize why 
that's like you said, not going to happen to us or to say if you or in a judgmental way, because you did that. That's why you're in the situation that you're in. And that doesn't give space, like you said, for any other for another person at all. And for my thinking, it is it can be a very selfish mentality. So how can you have proper conversations when you lead with yourself first? When you, yes, right. When you're when you are the ultimate when saving you is the ultimate goal of the communicative endeavor. Yes, I I have to save me. So I have to make myself feel better at your expense. Expense. Yes, that is not the way to communicate, connect or build community. It's a it's a wonderful it's one heck of a way to to strain community and to tear community asunder. But that's not what we're about here at the Motown Philly podcast. Jason, I want to say something that might be considered controversial, but I think it goes in along the lines of what we're saying. A a, a time honored moral value that we transmit to our children and is almost universally accepted in our moral culture is this. Mm -hmm. How would you like it if someone did that to you? How would you feel if someone did that to you? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And let me go out on a limb and say this. Mm-hmm. I think that's maybe not the best way to teach morality. Because when we teach morality that way, what we are saying is that the other person is substitutable, that I can remove the other person out of the way, Mm -hmm. install myself in their situation, Mm -hmm. and I ultimately end up condemning what happened to them, not because what happened to them is wrong, but because since I've substituted myself, I don't like the way it makes me feel. Mm. And when I, what I've ultimately done then is I have completely cut off empathy and compassion for the other person. And I have effectively substituted myself for the other person. And my moral judgment isn't based on the wrongness of what happened to the other person. Instead, it's based on how bad something makes me feel. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So what would happen if we if our moral culture shifted to the point where we said when something bad happens to another person the question isn't how would i feel if it happened to me but the question is how bad is that person feeling right now yeah how much is this person hurting right now If we could find a way to keep the focus on the other person Mm -hmm. instead of substituting ourselves for the other person and then making our moral judgment based on how something makes us feel. Mm -hmm. I think that will go a long way to improving 
the way that we relate to one another. Yeah. I think it's beautiful. I think it's a it's a beautiful concept. Like I've heard and just my maturation in life as a young adult to, you know, to the stage and where I am now, like Tim, you have had you have parents who have passed away and died. And so have I. But I am mistaken. If I say I, I, if I utter these words to you and they sound a lot like this, I know exactly how you feel. That's wrong. And I don't often go out and say on a limb and say that's wrong. But in this instance, I have to because it's not just in that situation, but it's in similar situations where we can often say, I know what that feels like. And that can never be true because you have never lived that person's experience. And that's what I hear you saying, Tim. It's just like when you take yourself, when you take that person out of that experience and insert yourself as if you have walked through every experience that person has gone through. And now you simply exerted, inserted yourself into that specific experience and said what you would and would not do or how you think you would feel that still those two, those things are, are, are not, those things are not equal. Like those things don't help you understand some, what someone is going through, because it's like we, what we were talking about last week. It is a congruency and consistency of whatever that person's life experience to that point that helps the person color what they're experiencing in that particular moment. So it's no clean switch and swap of who, what you would do now being them. You have to remain you and allow that person to remain you. And you do the work, if you will, to better understand by some type of healthy dialogue what someone is trying to explain what somebody is, what feelings of individuals trying to convey. And you do your best job to have compassion, compassion and empathy to, to best, I guess, to walk with and navigate together whatever is happening to, 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 to be taking place at that time or being said at that time. Well said, Jason. I'm going to go out on a limb and I'm going to say this too. When my father died, my brother and I gave him CPRs. He as he died right in front of us. Mm -hmm. I am out of line if I say to my older brother, I know exactly how you feel. Wow. Because if we take it a step further, everyone in my family experienced my father differently because mm -hmm. we are different people. And if we experience them differently in life, then we experience their absence differently in death. And mm. any assumption that I could substitute my own judgments, thoughts, feelings, etc., my own grief, my own pain, my own loss for that of one of my siblings is frankly irresponsible. Mm -hmm. Because we all experienced mommy and daddy differently. 
And the same happened when my mother died, right? Mm-hmm. I did not experience my mother the way my older brothers did or the way that my sisters did. And that's the beauty of family is that everyone comes together and in the si- in the silence of sorrow, we have learned to tarry with one another, to mm-hmm. tend to one another, to care for one another, to love for one an- love on one another without attempting some uh, you you use the word swap. Mm-hmm. I'll use the word substitution. Mm-hmm. The other person is utterly beyond substitution mm-hmm. because they are a unique individual in right. their own right and their experiences are different from our experiences and the way they process things is different from the way we process things and what a joy it would be if we learn to communicate responsibly mm-hmm. in relationship such that rather than rationalize and explain, we just tarry and mm-hmm. we comfort mm-hmm. and we might not say anything. Mm-hmm. And the only voice will be the voice of compassion and the voice of empathy, the voice of connection, mm-hmm. the voice of community, a community structured not based on me as an end trying to justify myself at your expense, but the joy of building community based on myself as a means to the end of caring for the other person. That I think is, is what is so very important about being responsible for what we say. And, And I think we started out talking about being responsible for but I think throughout this conversation, we've got a good sense of who we are responsible to, mm-hmm. right? That we are responsible to one another and for one another. You, you substitute, and I tell my students this, that one of the vagaries of logic is that it is abstract, that you can plug in any variables, P, Q, R, S, T, X, Y, Z, A, B, C. You can plug in any variables you want into a certain form and the form will get you a, a, an argument that is logically valid, right? But that is not the way it works in relationships. We are not variables, in a logical proof. We are not variables in an algebraic formula. We can't use abstraction. We have to deal with the concrete realities of one another's pain. And in order to do that, we have to learn to keep our mouths closed and our hearts open. Or if we do speak, make sure that what we have to say is a poetic word of comfort rather than a propositional word of reason because mm-hmm. rationality and reason meet their match at the doorstep of things that we don't understand. Mm-hmm. Just ask Job's three friends. They didn't understand and they started off on the right foot, 
but I think it was their attempt to save themselves that leads us to say, as we read on in the book of Job, well, with friends like that, who needs enemies? <laughs> if my friends are going to tell me that my deepest woes and my darkest hour is my own fault because of some rational theory they've concocted to exempt themselves and justify themselves. Well, I might as well not have any friends at all. That's not the kind of community we want to build here at Motown Philly, Jason. Mm -mm, not at all. And uh, we're not, hopefully we're not even close to doing anything like that. We're just doing the opposite. That's right. And that's why we want you to know listeners Jason and I talk about a lot of things on this podcast, but we don't have all the answers. We're imperfect, just like you. We're just a couple of guys going through life, trying to ask the right questions, hoping that we're helping make the world a little bit of place, a little bit of a better place along the way mm -hmm. as we go through life. So we, we just, again, we thank you for listening and we're just grateful to be building community with you. Jason, as we wind down episode 12 of the Motown Philly podcast on ethics and communication. If you're sharing on social media, make sure you use the hashtag Motown Philly. And you can also use the hashtag communicate, connect and community. Mm -hmm. Jason, where can they find you? Listen, you guys can find me on Instagram at the speakers mechanic. You can also find me at The Speaker's Mechanic on TikTok. If you're looking for me on LinkedIn, you can look for me at Jason Hall, speech, speech coach. I'm sorry, speech and communication coach. And if you're looking for me on Facebook, Jason Hall. Where can we find you, Tim? You can find me on Instagram at a good golden man. You can find me on Twitter at DRTJGoldenESQ. And three things in life for certain, death, taxes, and I am the only black person in Walla Walla named Tim Golden. That's right, Walla Walla, city so nice you had to say, it, say twice. it twice. You can find me on Facebook at Tim Golden. So, one again, say thank, one to once again, say thank you all for listening. We will come back to join you next week for episode 13 of the Motown Philly podcast. Thanks for listening, folks. Ethics and communication. Thanks, Thank you so much. God bless you. God bless.